heard a story this week about some interesting people that are going to the school systems, to high schools, you know, that are identifying not as a man or as a woman or even as a person anymore. They're identifying as something called a furry or a Furby, whatever you call it. They're no longer saying that they're human, but they're actually dressing up like animals, dogs, cats. In fact, there's a boy in my mom's school district that is claiming to be a bat, and he's dressing up like a bat, and I don't know if he's flying around school or what he's doing, but they are telling people that they're not actually human anymore, but that there's some kind of animal, and despite what you tell them, despite what is clear to everyone, they have convinced themselves that they were actually supposed to be an animal. Now, there's a lot I could say about that this morning. There's a lot I could say about our culture, society. But do you ever feel like people are just starting to go a little crazy? Have you ever felt like things are just starting to get a little bit unhinged, a little bit worse? This might be offensive to some people in other parts of the country, but men are men and women are women and people are people. And dogs are dogs and cats are cats. And that's how God made us. That's how God divided us. That's how he separated everything. And it's not old-fashioned to say that people can't be animals, that people can't be a dog just because they want to be a dog. Do you ever feel like culture is going the wrong way, like things that used to make sense that everybody agreed on is now starting to become outlawed even, looked down upon, traditional marriage, people don't even question now the different types of marriages and non-marriages that people get into. Do you ever feel like people don't listen to what God has to say? You feel like when you try to share the gospel maybe with a coworker, or even just your views on a certain subject, they have no interest or thought or care for what God and his word have to say? In our text this morning, Micah wasn't dealing necessarily with people who thought they were dogs or cats or different animals, but he was dealing with people who were living in sin, who were living in wickedness, but they didn't want to listen to what he had to say. And in fact, as Micah was writing his book and as he was preaching these messages against the people of Israel and of Judah, he had some people start to lie about him. He had some people start to call him out and question him and his prophecies. If you can imagine being in 700 BC this morning and you're the prophet Micah and you are preaching to the people, you are sharing God's word with others, you're telling people that judgment is coming and you'd better repent, you'd better turn your life around only to have other people say that you're lying, that you're crazy, that this isn't really who God is. We see, and as I've said throughout our study of the book of Micah, that Micah is about a, book, about a God who is not like us. That's what the name of Micah means. Who is like Yah, or who is like Yahweh, who is like the Lord. There is no one like our God. And this book puts that on display beautifully for us, showing us the attributes of God, his character, both in his justice, in his mercy, in his love towards us. We even see in his wrath towards sin this morning. But sometimes when life is going crazy, sometimes when things are starting to come undone, you can find it hard to trust God. You can find it hard to trust that God has everything under control. Sometimes you want to take things into your own hands. Sometimes you want to tell people exactly what you think of them. 
You don't trust God to have everything under control. We face a lot of injustice in life. We have people who will say things about us that aren't true. We'll have different political things that may in the future restrict our freedom even to worship. You as a Christian may be talked about badly by others. And then there's just daily injustices that we face. Your car doesn't work. It gets hit at the grocery store and has a dent in it. You have other types of things happen to you throughout your daily life. Life doesn't quite go your way. Do you trust God during times of injustice? Do you believe that he's the same God that he has always been? Well, as we look at our text this morning, I want to I want us to see this, this main idea, this main thought from our text, that you can trust the Lord during times of injustice. There's going to be times when things don't go your way. There's going to be times when things don't always work out exactly the way you plan for them to go. But you can trust the Lord during times of injustice. First of all, in verses 1 through 5, I want us to see that you can trust his justice. When life is unjust, when things don't go your way, when everything's spiraling out of control, you can trust his justice. Look with me at verse 1. Woe to those who devise wickedness. You've probably wondered as you've read your Bible what this word woe means. They're not trying to say wow or they're not trying to say something else like that, but it actually means that there's some kind of judgment that's coming. If you were to look in the dictionary, you would see that it means grief, lamentation, or mourning. It's a specific type of mourning or lament that comes when someone is being judged, when something bad is about to happen to someone. We see this three-letter word woe at the beginning of a lot of Old Testament texts when there's some kind of judgment coming from God. As I was studying for this sermon this week, I opened up one of my hermeneutics or interpretation textbooks and i was looking at the different types of prophecy or discourse in the bible and when i got to the section on woe or woe speech it was actually our text micah chapter 2 that was the example that it gave and so i felt like i was kind of using the answers in the back of the book for a second because it gave me information about how is woe speech used even in our text that we are studying and it always starts with this announcement of woe. And so we see that in verse 1. Woe to those. And then it gives you a brief statement on what this judgment is for. He says, woe to those who devise wickedness. You know what it means to devise something? To plan, to scheme, to come up with some kind of problem-solving technique. But he says, woe to those who scheme, who devise wickedness. And then after there's this statement that's given for why judgment is coming, there's always some kind of amplification or some more explanation for why are these people being judged? Why is it wrong to devise wickedness? We'll look at the rest of verse 1. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil in their beds. So that's the idea that these people are staying up late and coming up with evil plans and evil schemes. Things that are wrong to do. At night, they're planning wickedness. And then look at the next phrase. When the morning dawns, they perform it. They stay up all night planning things that are evil. They wake up the next morning and they commit evil actions. And we've talked about this 
in Sunday school a few months ago and just throughout our morning services that sin always happens this way. It doesn't just start with an action, but it starts with a desire that we have, some kind of thought, some kind of heart motivation. We see something, we want to do it, we have these evil thoughts, and we start making plans, and then we commit evil actions. Notice why they do these things. Notice why this happens at the end of verse 1. Because it is in the power of their hands. We're going to see in more detail in this text what they were doing that was so wrong. But we get the impression that they were doing wrong because they had some kind of authority or some kind of power to do wrong. They had more opportunity to do wrong. They had the power to carry these things out. They planned out this wickedness. And then they were carrying them out because they had the power to do so. Verse 2 gives us more explanation of what they were doing. It says they covet fields. Again, we see this desire. They look on something. They covet a field. And it says, and they seize them. And houses and take them away. They're looking at land, these different lands that people have. Land was a big deal back then. It's a big deal as well today. But they saw farming fields, houses, buildings, and they wanted them. They had a desire to have them. And so they took them. So now we get the impression that these are some kind of political people or people that have the power to take houses away or take fields away. They were probably rich. They might have had some political power. They might have been the leaders of Israel. Notice what else verse 2 says. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. We get the idea here that they're leaning on people. They're putting some pressure on them. They're trying to use the law in their favor. Later, Micah is going to specifically address the leaders in Israel. And he says, it was up to you to know justice. It's up to you to know what was right. Can you imagine if you're driving down the road one day and you were speeding I know nobody in our church would do that, but you were speeding and a cop pulled you over and he's talking to you and he said, hey, do you know what you did wrong? And you said, yes, I was speeding, you know, and then he asked you, he said, well, what does the law say I should do to you? What does the law say should happen to you? You would probably respond. You should just let me go. You should just let me keep on driving. But it's up to him to know what the laws are, right? He's the policeman. It's up to him to know what the punishment should be. B, these leaders didn't know justice. They didn't, it's not just that they didn't know justice, but they didn't act out justice. Micah says they loved evil and they hated good. This is later on in the book of Micah. And we see this happening here as well. These leaders are taking advantage of the positions of power that they had for their own personal gain, for their own personal wealth. We see in verses 3 through 5 the justice of God. In woe speech, there's always this response of judgment that's going to come. Because these people have sinned, because they've done wrong, there's going to be an appropriate act of justice or judgment that's going to come from the Lord. Look at verse 3. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I am against this family devising disaster. Think about this. These evil people were staying up and they were coming up with these plans and these strategies to do evil and to harm people who couldn't help themselves. But now the Lord is planning disaster. 
Now, God's obviously had everything planned out from before time. But we get this sense now that God is planning against the wicked. And I would be much more afraid of the Lord and his plans if he was coming after me than any of the plans of man. He says, I'm devising disaster from which you cannot remove your necks. This has the idea of being under a yoke like an ox. You have this thing over your head and you can't get out from it. You're stuck. Notice it's embarrassing. He says, and you shall not walk haughtily. You won't walk around like you're proud anymore because you've got this heavy load weighing down on your neck. And why is this? Because it will be a time of disaster. Your Bible might say calamity. It's not going to be a good time. It's not going to be prosperous. We talked about a couple weeks ago, Israel had had a prosperous time under the last couple kings that they had. Things had been going really well. They had a lot of money. They had a lot of possessions. They'd been financially prosperous, but this is not what was going to happen. God was going to bring judgment against them. Notice verse 4. And that day they shall take up a taunt song against you and moan bitterly. It's a song that the nations around them, which remember back in chapter 1, the Lord's talking to the nations. He's talking to all the nations around Israel, and he's telling them to look and to see the judgment that is going to come to this nation. So God's saying they're all going to taunt you. They're going to sing this song against you. They're going to say, we are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people. This judgment would be devastating. They would no longer be proud. They would no longer be prosperous. It says he changes the portion of my people. We see later that he's referring to the land. The land and the possessions that they had that was given from the Lord to them. Remember that God gave them that land. It would be taken away from them. It says he removes it from me. To an apostate he allots our fields. Someone else would come, another country would come, and they would take away the land that was Israel's. Because of their sin, because they've been taking land from others and doing what was not right, someone would take land away from Israel. Isn't that ironic that God would choose to judge Israel, these greedy land barons, these wicked leaders who were taking land away from others? He would choose to take away their own land, their own property, and it says he allots it or he gives it to apostates, people who don't know God. And you might ask yourself, well, why is God giving land to people who don't know him? Why is he choosing a wicked nation like Assyria or later Babylon to take away this land? And God's not condoning the wickedness of other nations, but it was up to Israel to know who God was. They should have walked in his ways. They should have understood what was right and what was wrong. So the, for this temporary time, God would use a nation even more wicked than Israel because Israel should have known the laws of the Lord. There was a greater responsibility given to them, a greater responsibility because so much had been revealed to them about God and his character. He'd done so much for that nation. This judgment would come and it would be embarrassing. It would be taunting these nations would laugh at them if you've ever been to a basketball game i took my dad to a indiana basketball game a couple weeks ago 
couple months ago now. And it was interesting if a player from the opposite team would miss a free throw or they would airball a shot, you could be sure that the crowds would cheer and they would taunt. And sometimes in other countries, they have different songs that they sing about the players and the whole crowd is going to laugh at them because it's such a raucous environment. That's a picture, at least, that I get in my mind of these nations that are laughing, they're taunting Israel because of the judgment that was coming from God. And notice verse 5. This is the most extreme and it's the most intense judgment of all, even though you might not see it necessarily at first. I know I didn't. Therefore, you will have none to cast the line by lots in the assembly of the Lord. Mike is saying there's going to be a day when we're regathered as a nation and where we have this land, this kingdom, and you are not going to have any part of it. I think in verse 5, he's specifically talking to those wicked leaders. But they're being removed from the people of God. They're not going to be part of that further, that future regathering of God's people. They're being removed from his presence. You know, it's bad to lose your house, your farmland, your possessions, but it is a much more scary and daunting idea that you will not be in the presence of the Lord anymore, that there is no future hope for you. This is the judgment that would come from God. And imagine being a person who's had your house taken away, who's had your inheritance taken away, who's had all this injustice happen to you. Do you think you would find it hard to trust the Lord? Do you think you would find it hard to believe that God's going to keep his promises? Did any of this catch God by surprise? No, God sees it all. He has seen everything that these people have done. And he's planned it all out. He knows what is going to happen to them. Again, this judgment that was coming, we don't have to guess what happened. We know from scripture that in Israel, Assyria came and took over the entire nation. And for Judah, Babylon would come later and wipe out that entire nation and take people into captivity as well. They would lose their land. God keeps his promises. We see that clearly in this text. Yet this sermon just isn't about God giving out punishments to others. It's not just about God being angry and being judgmental towards others. And we're not just here to cheer on God as he's wiping people out. But it reminds us of something that God keeps his word. That there's not a text, there's not one drop of ink in scripture that is not going to be carried out by God. That if God says something, he is going to do it. Think about people in our world today. Say, God, Jesus isn't coming back. God's not going to judge the world. They mock God. They mock Christianity. They don't believe the Bible is true. They think it's just an old book of fairy tales. No, if God says something, God is going to do it. He keeps his promises. We're thankful as believers that while God keeps his promises to judge those who have been sinful... That if you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, he also keeps his promise to you. That although you sinned against God, if you know him as Savior, if you know him as Lord, if you've repented of your sins, then you will spend eternity with him. 
and you can worship him as your Savior. You can trust the justice of God. You can trust that God keeps his promises, that he sees the injustice that is happening in your life. You can also trust God's truth. Look with me at verses 6 through 11. You can trust his truth. As Micah is preaching to others, as he's giving this message, and it's probably these first five verses of chapter 2, that he's been going around telling other people. He's told leadership and people who would listen to him. People respond to Micah. And in verse 6, we get this quotation of what the prophets were saying about Micah. Now, none of the prophets that are in our Bibles, but these other false prophets that were there. Notice what they said. Do not preach, thus they preach. They're telling Micah, hey, be quiet. Don't say any of that. Don't preach anymore. One should not preach such things. You shouldn't be preaching these things to other people. You shouldn't be having this be your message. This isn't a message that other people want to hear. Why are you getting everybody down with your message of judgment? What else do they say? Disgrace will not overtake us. God's not going to judge us. He's not going to bring judgment on us for our sin. This is what people were saying about Micah and his preaching. They were telling him to stop. They were spreading rumors about him that this Micah guy doesn't know what he's talking about. We don't know anybody like that in our world today, do we? That doesn't think judgment is coming that calls out people who are actually preaching God's word because they don't think it's loving and accepting towards others. Notice verse 7. This further escalates it. This is the Lord questioning them or mocking them. Should this be said, O house of Jacob? He's asking the nation now, is this true? Do you really believe this, that Micah shouldn't preach? Has the Lord grown impatient? They were saying God's not going to judge us because he's patient. Because God's going to let us keep sinning. He's not going to respond to us in anger. Has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Would God, would a loving God really take away our land? Would he really send us into captivity? They didn't believe the promises of God. They didn't believe what God had said was going to happen in his word. And I would tell you i would suggest to you this morning that this probably didn't just happen to micah but it probably happened to other prophets in micah's day as well the prophet hosea the prophet isaiah who were contemporaries of micah who spoke at the same time they had this opposition as well it would happen later to the prophet jeremiah people would lie about him and say this judgment wasn't coming I even think the nation of Judah, after seeing Israel being taken, probably didn't think that judgment was coming for them. The question is, do you think that God keeps his word? Do you think that God keeps his promises? Notice what the Lord says. Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly. These prophets, these false teachers, these leaders are saying, God will do good to us. He'll bring good on us. He'll bring blessing to us. But it's to those who walk uprightly. It's to those who live like God has asked them to live. God would bless the nation of Israel, but it was only on his covenant promises that they would obey his law. 
And has the nation of Israel obeyed the law of God as we've seen in Micah chapter 2? No, they have not. They've done what is evil in his sights. They've been wicked towards those who couldn't protect themselves. And we will, we will even see that in a few moments. This mocking from the Lord of these false prophets. There are people in Micah's day who wanted to manipulate what he was saying. Who wanted to spread gossip and propaganda about him. Because they didn't like what he had to say. People aren't always going to like God's word. They're not always going to like the message that God has. You know, when you share the gospel with someone, you're telling them about a loving Savior who died for them, about a great God who is not like us. But you're also telling people that they have sinned, that they're not perfect, that they've made mistakes, and that they need to repent. And there's plenty of people who don't want to hear that. Notice what the Lord says in verse 8. He describes these wicked actions of Israel and Judah. But he says, But lately my people have risen up as an enemy. I would bless Israel, I would bless Judah, but they've become now my enemy. They've done what's not right in God's sight. He says, You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly. This picture is given of a man, maybe not even a rich man, but he has a nice garment on him. And people attack him, much like the Good Samaritan. And they take his robe, they take his clothes off of him. And it says he walks by trustingly. He doesn't think anything is going to happen to him. He says he has no thought of war. He's not on guard, he's not on alert, because he doesn't think anyone would attack him. It gets worse. Look at verse 9. The women of my people you drive out. It wasn't just men that they were practicing evil against, but women, probably even widows, who had been given houses and land from their dead husbands as an inheritance. It says you drive them out of their delightful houses. The women who could not protect themselves, who they were meant to look out for, instead they saw them as an opportunity to gain more wealth, to get more land. And they took advantage of helpless widows. But it gets even worse. From their young children, you take away my splendor forever. The sons and daughters, these children who were innocent of these widows, they stole from them as well. They were not just unjust, they didn't just sin against men, but they were unjust against women and children as well. This was the wicked actions of the nations. You see how detrimental it was. You see how intense it was. How this sin spread even down to being sinful towards people who couldn't protect themselves. It's no wonder why in verse 10... God says, arise and go, for this is no place to rest. This land that you're in, this is no place to rest. Why? Because of the uncleanness that destroys it. Why should they not stay in the nation of Israel or Judah? It's because God is bringing judgment. No, because sin has infected it. And sin has spread like a disease throughout the entire nation. We read last week. The sin of Judah was incurable. 
It would spread and it would kill the entire body. This uncleanness had infected the land. And it was the sin of Israel and Judah that would destroy them. This is why God would judge them. Because of the uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction. And then God mocks them in verse 11. If a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher of this people. What he's saying is that you would accept any false prophet. You would accept anyone who lies to you, who tells you what you want to hear, who tells you that judgment isn't going to come from the Lord. You don't have very good standards. You don't have very high standards, but you would accept someone who you know is lying to you. It reminds me of what Paul says in Ephesians. There's some people who are blown about, carried away by every wind of doctrine. There's some people who don't care about truth, but they care about what sounds good to them. Many of you know I like the Babylon Bee, which is a fake news satire site. It's not real news, but they write fake news articles, kind of poking fun at all sides on the Internet. But there's many sites who have thought that it's actually real news, and they've fact-checked them several times. And the Babylon Bee is not actually trying to be a real news site, but different websites like Snopes and USA Today have fact-checked the Babylon Bee saying, hey, this is not real news. Well, yeah, we knew that. It's satire. It's a joke. But it's almost like saying you get your news from the Babylon Bee. You get all your information on what's going on from a website that's lying to you, that's not trying to tell you the truth. These people were more than willing to listen to people who they knew were lying to them, who they knew were going to tell them that everything is okay, that they'd done nothing wrong. Friends, where do you get your truth from? What do we know guides us in all truth? It's the word of God. Jesus says, sanctify them with thy truth. Your word is truth. God's word gives us truth for our life. It tells us where we should go. The Holy Spirit, Christ says, will lead us in all truth. When the spirit of truth has come, he will guide you in all truth. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning and you have the Holy Spirit, he is leading you, he's guiding you in all truth. This text should be a warning to us this morning to examine the words of others. Just because someone says they're a pastor doesn't mean you don't make sure that they're being accurate to scripture. Just because someone says they have a message from the Lord doesn't mean it's actually what God says. Are you faithful to check with God's word and see if this is actually truth? You also keep a short account of sin. Israel was more than willing to stay in their sin and not repent because they thought God would be patient with them, that nothing bad would happen to them. Friends, we all sin. We all will continue to sin. Do you repent of your sin quickly? Do you rationalize your sin? Do you convince yourself that it's okay? Or do you go boldly to God's throne of grace and ask for repentance and ask for forgiveness from your sin? We see in these first two chapters, which was one message from Micah, one message from the Lord. It's set apart by the word here. 
we see the wickedness of Israel and Judah and the judgment from God that was going to come because of it. And there's none of us in this room that can sit here this morning and say that this judgment was not deserved. They'd sinned against God and God was responding appropriately to them. But I love how the text ends. It ends with hope. This message, this first message that Micah gives them ends with hope. And so finally, you can trust his protection. You can trust his justice. God sees injustice. He sees what's going on in your life, probably better and deeper than even you see it yourself. You can trust his truth, that God knows what the truth is, and he will stick to that truth even when people are telling you lies. And finally, you can trust his protection. Notice these final two verses. I will surely assemble all of you, Jacob. What would happen when Israel was overtaken, when Judah was taken into captivity? They'd spread out. They'd intermarry. They probably thought this is going to be the end. We're going to not be a nation anymore. We're not going to be the people of God. Would this be the end of God's people? The text tells us, no, I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to assemble you again into what he calls the remnants. I will surely assemble you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnants. While judgment would come, people would die. They would go into captivity. God would preserve his people. He would gather them together again as his nation now, we know this happens in Scripture, where Israel is brought back after captivity. And they're back even as a nation today. But this will happen even more in a future sense at the coming of Christ. God would gather his people. The text says he gathers them together like sheep in a fold. Like these sheep who are wandering around, who are lost. He goes after them, he brings them back in. It reminds me of parable of the lost sheep where one goes off and the good shepherd goes and brings him back to the 99 i will not leave you separated but he would gather them together again like sheep in a fold like flock in a pasture a noisy multitude of men you can trust that god would judge them that he would bring judgment towards Israel, but also that God would gather them together again as his nation. And notice verse 13. He who opens the breach goes up before them. This shepherd would gather them, and then he would lead them together once again. Their king passes on before them. The Lord is at their head. God would not only gather his people, but he would lead them and he would shepherd them as their king. You can trust him. You can trust his protection during times of injustice. Do you trust him this morning? In the valleys of life, when life isn't going your way, do you depend on him during times of injustice? Do you trust that God will lead you as your king? That he will protect you? That he will guard you? 
Israel sinned, they walked away from God. But the message of Micah this morning is that God would bring them back. He would bring them back as his people. He would be their king. We know that Israel had many kings who did what was not right in God's sight. They sinned against God. But the message of Micah is that there is a perfect king who is coming, who would lead this nation, who would get rid of sin and who would lead them like he should. This text this morning tells us that you can trust in God's justice and his truth but also in the protection that comes from him. And so this morning, how can you trust God in times of injustice? First of all, you can tell God the problems and trials of your life. You can tell God the problems and trials of your life. You can secondly walk in obedience to his commands. You can not only tell God what's going on in your life, knowing that he will hear you, that he will answer your prayer, but you can obey what he's told you to do. Walk as his child. Thirdly, you can let God worry about vengeance. You don't have to worry about judgment that's coming. You don't have to take it upon yourself to act and judge others, but you can let God worry about vengeance. And then lastly, you can rest on the promises of God, that if God has said it, he will do it. You can trust him in times of injustice, that God will keep his promises. You will face in this life, in this wretched and sin-cursed world, times that are not easy, times that are hard. You'll have people sin against you. You will face injustice in this life. But the good news is always this, that you can trust him. So maybe you're here this morning and you have injustice right now. You have things that are going on in your life. People have sinned against you. Times that have been hard. Maybe you think that life just hasn't been fair. You can trust in the promises of God. Maybe you're here this morning and you know you've sinned against God. You know that you've broken his law. You can walk in obedience to what he's commanded you to do. You can repent of your sin and trust in his salvation. Maybe you feel like God isn't listening to you, that God doesn't hear you when you cry out to him. We know from God's word that he hears our prayers when we cry out to him. The Psalms are full of examples of People telling God their problems and crying out to him and God answering them. God always hearing them. Friends, you can rest in the character of God because he is not like us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Thank you that you are a just God who sees all, who is working through it all. God, we thank you that even when times are difficult, even when times are hard, we can trust you. Pray that you'd help us respond according to your word this morning. Pray that you would help us to trust you even when times are hard and difficult. Help us to remember your promises. In Jesus' name, amen.